By the way, I just Wikipedia'd Peter Grant. I mean, his photo, he looks like a Dothraki or something. <laughs> <laughs> And welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints, the podcast where lifelong musicians dive deep into classic albums and musicians' backgrounds and stories from some of the most influential albums in the universe, as immortalized in the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die. So we're going to give you history on the band, history on the record, the production of it. We're going to do a deep dive on some of the musical aspects of some of the songs, And at the end, we're going to vote, all of us, on whether you actually need to hear this album before you die. And at the very end, we're going to randomly select next week's album and start listening thence. My name's Rob. I've been in love with records since MTV first beamed into my house, and I've been playing music since high school. I want to thank you for listening to us, and I want to congratulate everyone here on the 100th episode. Damn. Yeah crazy it's a big milestone man huge milestone and we have chosen to do led zeppelin 2 we didn't choose the the random albinator selection this week instead we went with led zeppelin 2 hearkening back to our very first episode where we covered led zeppelin 1 really this podcast was originally brought together by a love of talking shit on Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Which is why we're going to end the podcast with Coda in like 10 years. <laughs> That's the goal. Miserable bastards. When our beards have grown gray and we are but wizened <laughs> old men. When? We sh- <laughs> when we are but wizened old men. Yeah. We shall be discussing Coda. I just thought of Lars's dad. Oh, yeah. The wizard beard. <laughs> exactly. So... Uh, it's going to be a, a longer episode. I'll, you, you guys should just strap in. Thank you again for listening. We're excited to get into Led Zeppelin 2. We're going to go back and retcon some stuff from the Led Zeppelin 1 episode and talk about what's changed and what hasn't. We're going to get into some statistics from low these 100 episodes. And, of course, we're going to spend most of our time talking about Led Zeppelin 2. So... Let's get right into the music right now and play a snippet of the first track on Led Zeppelin's second full-length release entitled 2. The song is called Whole Lot of Love. <laughs> Never heard this one. Never, yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's yeah, a very under the radar. <laughs> it's what you call a deep cut in the yeah. business. Yes, right, right. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna get into that. We're gonna talk about a whole lot of love specifically. We're gonna talk about the whole record. We're gonna talk about the background of Led Zeppelin. But first, by way of introducing everyone here in the studio, I would love to hear tweet length reviews 
of Led Zeppelin 2, and we're going to throw it first over to Tom. All right. Thank you, everybody. You know, since my heyday in my mid-teens, I haven't really listened to much Led Zeppelin. I kind of got blasted with their hits incessantly on rock radio, driving around in the car when I was young, but... Since the days where I could pick the music I listened to, they were never quite a band that I kind of chose to actively seek out. So in a lot of ways, this week was uh, kind of like going to your 20-year high school reunion and uh, seeing that girl that you had a crush on in high school. And you know what? God damn, if she's not still super hot. (laughs) (laughs) Man, you girls in high school must have been better than mine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, let's kick it over next to Adam. Hey, everybody, this is Adam. For the 100th episode, 100th album, I wanted to stay true to the actual 280-character limit on Twitter. So for today, my tweet-length review is, Who would have thought Tolkien could get you laid? (laughs) (laughs) It's good. It's good. Okay, let's move it right along the line to Alan. So I was getting ready to listen to this album again this week as as sort of homework to kind of get ready. But I thought it would actually be more fun to just drive around for an hour. And I ended up catching the entire thing on local classic rock radio. <laughs> nice. <laughs> WMGK? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Adult contemporary. Dude, MGK is now playing Nirvana. Uh, so that just tells you how whoa, old we are. Times yeah. have changed. Okay, let's kick it over to Phil. Hey, everyone. It's Phil in for the week. And Rob, I'd really I'd really like to thank you for dropping friends from the intro. Let's get those pleasantries removed from the, <laughs> from the, from the list of descriptors of Life our, our musicians and acquaintances. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in, in celebration of Led Zeppelin 2, I decided to write two tweet-length reviews this week. The first one is... When I saw the focus list and I saw that it did not include living, love, and made, I knew Rob was a no. He's trying to bring down your experience. He's stacking the deck. Prove me wrong. He definitely left us wanting. Or not. All right. My other, my other tweet length review is if you want to listen to a rhythmless white man blindly, sloppily search for the one beat, I mean, even a broken clock is right twice a day, then I present to you Led Zeppelin 2, 41 minutes of Adam, you can eat shit. You don't know what you're talking about. Jimmy Page is a god. He's a vampire. He's been drinking baby's blood since the 70s. He'll never die, and he'll always be better at guitar than both of us. <laughs> Preemptive wow. strike, Phil. Well done. Well, you forecasted, I think, what's going to happen. This is Rob here, and I'm going to... My tweet length review is, is pretty straight ahead, but it does reflect an encapsulation of how I feel. Led Zeppelin learn all the right lessons from their debut album, and then, while touring the world, manage to tighten the screws and record what might be the most important rock and roll record of all time. Oh, Whoa. all right. All right. So... Before we dive into the background of Led Zeppelin, I think we're going to bring a lot more knowledge, even than what we had in that first episode, 100 episodes ago, from the whole crew. We have a lot to get through. I wanted to, I did listen to that first episode this week. I imagine a couple of y'all did. And I wanted to mention that, you know, some stuff got better. Our, our vocal ticks, you know, we reduced some of those. Our audio quality clearly got better. We're, we apologize if you've listened to that first episode. We sound better now. However, 
Some stuff stayed the same. And I present to you, <laughs> dear listeners, the 1001 Album Complaints drinking game. <laughs> you can play along oh. with us Let's on go. this very episode. And these are all things that happened in episode number one. And I can almost guarantee they will come up again today. <laughs> number one, we bring up the artist's appearances favorably or unfavorably. Take a shot for okay. that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. You've looked at my notes, I see. Number two, one of us <laughs> mentions an obscure instrument. On episode one, it was a sousaphone. <laughs> but there are many, I assure you. Wait, the only thing I know about a sousaphone is that the guy from Married with Children, the second one of Marcy's husbands, I think, played one of those. Or maybe it was the first one, but he was a subject of ridicule for it. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a pull. deep cut. A deep, deep cut. Pull, deep right. pull. Uh, number three, one of us sings or mouths a musical part to make a point. Tom. God, that happened. <laughs> that happened early and often. I know. I was going to call him out, but I was going light. Uh, we complain about songs being too long. That's you might have better just take a sip of beer for that because that happens right now yeah, 700 right. times an episode. <laughs> and last but not least, Phil mentions hard panning as a 1960s era mixing technique. <laughs> That's it. Okay, most of my notes are about panning. This <laughs> Listen, no, 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 I don't want to, I don't want to staunch oh, the I flow. Mean, sorry, sorry, <clears throat> I'm just pointing out that this yes. is what we do and we have done it since the beginning. Now, we're sadly, there were a couple things. I didn't go through the whole catalog this week, but there were a couple things that I think you can add to the drinking game that weren't present in episode one, but I guarantee they happened in the first five, which is Adam complains about the singer being woefully off key. <laughs> the Hammond yep. organ is praised in some way. <laughs> yep. And there is a reference to using a bass pick. Oh, God damn it. Okay, I'm, that's good. I'm ready. I'm ready to talk bass pick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, now we're getting somewhere. That's early in my notes, too. <laughs> I, I'm sure. I'm sure. So we're going to get to all that. You can look forward to all that. Have your drink at hand, especially if you're listening to this in the car. And <laughs> <laughs> before we dive into Led Zeppelin, I just wanted to make a plea to y'all. Thank you for listening all this time. The listenership has been growing. We love doing this. We know that a lot of people love what we're doing. Thank you immensely for that. And I want to put a call out to y'all. Do you want us to continue to up our game, to create more content, to research records even more deeply, to maybe even talk to some of the people behind these records? Then all you have to do, it's simple, is support us by doing a couple really simple things. One is rate and review the show on all the major platforms. It's easy. It's fast. Spotify, it's literally just a star rating. Apple Podcasts, you can just do a star rating if you like to or leave a review. Number two, share this with other people in your life. We know you know other music nerds or musicians or persnickety nitpickers or however you want to call them. <laughs> All right. We know you know a few of these people and that you're a part of these fan communities that will ultimately enjoy this. I hope this gets shared across the Led Zeppelin subreddit, for instance. Go ahead and follow us on Instagram. It's a small, inexpensive, nay, I say free thing, but it really helps us out. Follow both the Chop Unlimited which is the production company's account. It has all the music we create on it also. And we also are posting clips of the show to it. And we're also posting different clips to 1001 Album Complaints on Instagram. We post clips. We give updates. It's a great way to support us easily. And like I said, the, the links to all the music that we produced personally is there, which you're free to listen to and complain about, by the way. And lastly, of course, listen to our music, right? We wouldn't 
I hope it's clear. We like to complain. We like to nitpick about records, but we also know how hard it is to play music, to write songs, to put yourself out there, to produce records. It's hard. We know that. We know about the flaws in our music, but we do try. We try to produce music. We think it's great. So listen to it on all the streaming platforms. We have a Spotify playlist linked in the show notes every week that is all our music. All the folks on this call are producing that music, and it's just a great way to support us stream some of that music. Tons of hard panning in all of that music, by the <laughs> yes, way. Yes, lots of hard panning. Exactly. And lots of Hammond, Oregon, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, before we get into any of the background of Led Zeppelin, I want to roll right into one of the most popular segments of these 100 episodes, By the Numbers. Let's do Led Ooh. Zeppelin 2, By the Numbers. So, Bring it on. Led Zeppelin 2 was released. October 22nd, 1969, a scant nine months after Led Zeppelin 1 was released. Jeez. And keep in mind, only about one year since these guys had first gotten together in a room and played together. More on that later. This was hugely successful. It hit number one in both the U.S. and the U.K. It has been charted as having sold 12 million albums. That's 12 times platinum. And in case you're curious, it went double platinum in about six months. So this isn't just a case of the catalog stretching out 50 years. The band is estimated to have made $5 million in that short amount of time. So they were rolling in cash. In 1969 dollars. That's correct. That's how you get your own fucking branded jet that you get to drive fly around your shows in. And you stand on top of roofs in the suburbs and shout, I am a golden god, as immortalized (laughs) in Almost Famous. Yes, Robert Plant actually did that. He wasn't wrong. Before he wasn't wrong. Before we we close this section out, I have a few extra stats for you guys. Maybe you can kind of lead me and guess. Number of times on this tour that Bonzo, that's John Bonham, got so drunk on tour that he fell asleep at his drums during the oh set. Oh my god. How, how many, many days was the tour? Yeah. How many shows did they <laughs> how play? Many, yeah, how many gigs? I would it say was a like third a solid of the eight shows. months. Yeah. A third of the shows. Oh, I'm only going like eight. I'm gonna go with five. He was drunk plenty of times to be clear. Sure, but sure. there was one right, time right. in particular where he literally fell asleep during the set and they had to coax a roadie out there to wake him up who was deathly scared of waking oh this guy up. <laughs> and then oh. when he did wake him up he just started throwing stuff at him right away like a bear. Oh was it during Moby Dick? <laughs> okay, funny, great segue, Alan. S- second stat I want to throw at you. Number of Led Zeppelin band members who would routinely go backstage to get simultaneous blowjobs during the Moby Dick drum solo. I mean, that, all of them? Yeah. At least three, but I'd say maybe yeah, sometimes right. four. <laughs> three, three band members, that's correct. Man. While John Bonham was in that lengthy drum solo, that was kind of what the solo was designed for, in a way. <laughs> See, I think John Paul Jones really flew under the radar, because, like, you know, he seems like the most sort of straight-laced kind of guy, but uh turns out he was just better at hiding it. I think so. I Listen, think so. I gotta say, okay. I'm not going to give anybody shit if it's, you know, as they say, like post-birth control, pre-AIDS era, and you're just like getting blowjobs as a rock star on top of the world. Like, I'm not giving anybody shit for that. Even though I believe that most of them were married at the time that they were doing this. They were this. all married. They're That's all correct. married. Class yes. act. Yeah. They were yes. all married. Classy. Yep. Yes. Class act. This is the least of their bad behavior, I assure you. But we're going to try <laughs> to. Because we have a lot more Led Zeppelin records to go on this podcast. So we're not, you know, we're not going to go too far afield here. But they were known for bad behavior, rightfully so. And last stat I want to throw at you and by the numbers. Number of singles officially released from this album. One. 
All of them. Yeah, no, no one. Zero? <laughs> they released one in Zero. the U.S., but not in the, not in the well, U.K., right? Well, there's a story about that. They did not officially release that. That was a weird in-between thing where AM radio refused to play a whole lot of love, even though people were clamoring for it because it was five or six minutes long, whatever it is. And so a radio DJ convinced Paige that he could edit it together. But that was how they did manage to distribute some. They, or sorry, they didn't distribute any. They got a whole lot of love radio play. But they were Led Zeppelin as a band was totally against releasing singles. Now, that strategy might have laughed them all the way to the bank because what that meant in practice was that if you wanted to hear the songs, you had to buy the entire record. Go buy the whole damn thing. Wow. But it was considered quite odd at the time and. For these longer songs, of course, it meant chopping them down. And they, they pretty much continued with that throughout. They really didn't release singles, and it bolstered their album sales and concert tickets. And, you know, I normally would say that that's kind of a dick move to force somebody to buy the whole album instead of being able to access the single. But my experience with Led Zeppelin was I bought the Led Zeppelin box set, that four-CD box set that they released in the 90s. And so I never listened to albums. I never listened to Led Zeppelin 1, 2, or 3, or 4. I just listened to the CDs that I had. And listening to this album, they'd be like, damn, how many of those fucking songs that I love were packed into this album? A single album, right? It's pretty killer. Well, that so you're right, because it also eventually led to this world that we was referenced in our tweet-length reviews, where people didn't have a clear path. Like radio and radio DJs for a long time into our lifetime were very hemmed in by the concept of singles, but because they didn't have singles, they would just play any one of these tracks on the radio. It was like, it was fair game. So it was a little hack to get all of them almost to what we would call single status. Yeah. I can only think of maybe two songs in this album that were not in heavy rotation on classic rock radio in the nineties, which by the way, as one of those like fucked, the way that time works things is that uh, the 90s now, I believe the era that I'm talking about is farther away than the time that I was listening to Led Zeppelin in the 90s from when it was actually released. That, like, that sounds wow. about correct. That's, yeah. That's yeah. trippy. Yeah. Yeah. We're probably. That is very trippy. <laughs> yeah, that is wild. Okay. So we touched on the background of Led Zeppelin in episode number one, but that was Tom led that episode. He led it. In a great way, he kicked us off, and and actually, Tom was the impetus <laughs> to start this whole podcast. But so I wanted to take a crack at it. I read sure, well, this Rob's week. about to say Tom. Tom did that. So here's my list of all the things that he did wrong that I'm now going to correct. <laughs> here's, here's my 1001 complaints of episode <laughs> yes. one. Take it away, Rob. Not quite, not quite. But we got a couple things a little off, understandably. So I think we've all gotten a lot better at our research over this time, naturally, right? But anyway, I was going to say I read a a biography of Led Zeppelin by a guy called Bob Spitz. It was just entitled Led Zeppelin. I didn't get 100% of the way through it, but I got up through the physical graffiti era of the band, which is well beyond this. And I wanted to say, actually, I think it was a great, really fun read. I would recommend it if you're interested in either in the band Led Zeppelin or the UK 60s music scene. It had a lot of great uh, detail, and it was just very readable. So I'm going to be quoting kind of a lot from that or referencing that. But last time we talked about how before Led Zeppelin started, Page was this very successful session player, and he plays uncredited on a bunch of songs, including You Really Got Me. I thought we'd do a quick trivia game. I pulled together a couple 1960s number one hit records that were recorded in and around London. I want you guys to guess which one Page is on. There's the Goldfinger theme by Shirley Bassey. 
There's It's Not Unusual by Tom Jones. There's Downtown by Petula Clark. And there's the Joe Cocker version of With a Little Help from My Friends. Adam, what do you think? Whew. Uh, the Goldfinger theme, just because it's so out of left field. He's on all of them. Oh, Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. <laughs> Those are too random and disparate to not have it be all of them. Yeah. yeah. I knew Good he call. was on two of those, but I did not know he was on Goldfinger or the Tom Jones song. Oh, yeah. This dude was playing in sessions from the age of probably Everyone. 18 or even earlier, probably, for many years. And he was the go-to guy it's worth mentioning that he also met john paul jones john paul jones was working on that same circuit so jonesy as he is known plays on the rolling stone she's like a rainbow and donovan's mellow yellow and they would just occasionally run into each other at gigs as session musicians and so i think the context is of you know of him wanting to start led zeppelin was a he had a very good job he swung from studio session to session he was a killer. Everyone knew it. He was really young still, and he was making good money. And he was doing that for like six years, and J- uh, Jonesy was the same, right? But they were starting to feel a little, like it was a little stuffy. Like they didn't want to, they wanted to have more freedom of expression, right? And not be hired guns. But And yet they talk about how they just kind of assumed they would deviate from that path for a little while and, and go back. At least John Paul Jones said that. He assumed, oh, let's go have fun with this band for a while, and then I'll go back to my very lucrative studio career you know rob one thing i read that bob spitz uh biography as well i I listened to the audiobook of it this week one of the things that blew my fucking mind is they would be talking about all of these accomplishments that they're having and you're like you know you're in the midst of hearing all of this and so you're not repeatedly contextualizing it and then they'd be like and then he turned 17 and you're like what the fuck are you (laughs) talking about then he turned 17 jesus okay all right he's accomplished more than i ever have musically in my entire life and he's 16 years old okay fuck you (laughs) yeah yeah, yeah he was gigging he was on the road with bands during that time and studio work allowed you one of the reasons it was a good job for a musician is because it allowed you to gig at night, but also have a day job. So as soon as he got out of the high school, he was doing that full time, but he was doing some of that in high school. It, it is crazy to think about, right? Although I will say it's sort of interesting that at some point, at any point during the, any day, there's a kid somewhere in the world that is playing these riffs as like a 15 year old learning how to play guitar, which is kind of cool. Discovering it for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. I liked, there was an anecdote too in that book about, I'm just going to call him Jonesy from now on. John Paul Jones. <laughs> He's like a ho- hockey player. I, I think that's a good choice. Yeah. I think <laughs> you, guys, John I know you guys are close. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, they all have nicknames. You know, Jonesy, I think, is the most... Jonesy and Bonzo are the biggest ones. But I did hear a reference to Planty one time. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's yeah, not a good one. even try it. Yeah. But no. there, there was an anecdote about how... Because John Paul Jones was about the same age as Paige, kind of on the same circuit. He gets asked to do a session involving... Orchestra. They go, do you know how to write orchestration? He goes, yeah, sure. And then he immediately goes to the bookstore and buys a book like orchestration for dummies or whatever. So, you know, that was that was the deal. And it was interesting to read, too, about that scene. All these guys were intermingling, partly because or one of the reasons was because the education system in England, you have to specialize way earlier than in America. And so if you didn't really have a specialization or you just kind of had this general idea that you wanted to be creative, you went to what was called like art and design school. At the time. And all these famous musicians were in some art and design program around London at that time and had a lot of intermingling and went to the same clubs to see musicians. Pete Townsend, Clapton, Beck, Keith Richards all did some version of that. 
uh, circuit and they became kind of, and you didn't have to do much at those schools. They weren't rigorous, right? <laughs> so they became kind of incubators for creativity. I mean, I think that's actually like a, a story we've seen play out a few times, right? These, these sort of, you know, high school or even, you know, elementary school pockets, right? That, that sort of turn into uh, incubator is a good word for a whole a whole scene down the line. I just wanted to, hearing about this studio work, I wanted to touch on the pressure it must have been like of being a band in the studio at that point. Because the situation is studio time is crazy expensive. The record company may have signed you and your band, but they are trying to get this done as quickly as possible. It is a factory. And so you walk in there, and if you can't nail the take, the entire band, mind you, in one or two takes, they're immediately kicking you out the door and bring calling in Jimmy Page or John Paul Jones and guys like that. It's just like, it's a terrifying compared to what we've been through. Was it that band love that we did where they had to bring in like the wrecking crew just to kind of show them what's up? Like, Hey, you guys gotta, gotta make this happen. Yeah. It was standard practice back then. If you weren't getting, they expected you to get the takes pretty much immediately, which is and I don't know, later that that did not become the standard. And that's not what we've experienced. Of course. Well, I was going to say John Paul Jones is this band's like, I guess not so secret weapon. He is the best musician in the band by far. The other guys are naturally talented. He is the best actual musician in the band. So Rob told the story about somebody asking him if he could arrange. And he said, sure. And then bought an arrangement book and then immediately started arranging. And within a year, he's like, I was arranging 50 songs a month for studio gigs, 50 songs a month for studio gigs. And that's kind of what led to him wanting to join a band, the burnout of this yeah, you I know, can imagine. You're just going home and arranging, 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 and then it's all writing. day long charts, you're performing charts, charts. and arranging. Yeah. I forget if I'd mentioned it on the podcast before, but my old man used to call that music by the pound. Yeah. Right? And it's just totally. soul draining. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I wanted to just revisit. Yeah. So it, it was draining on a lot of levels. You're working on other people's music, not your own. I think Paige and Jonesy were probably disillusioned by just seeing these other young bands come through and get their hopes and dreams somewhat crushed and things like that. So it, it was definitely a grind, right? But I, I want to revisit the briefly the Yardbirds timeline and how the idea of Led Zeppelin actually came about. We touched on some of it, right, in the last podcast, but I wanted to revisit it. So, and because personally, I've always been confused about the Yardbirds timeline. They're this famous band that had three super famous guitar players in it. So let me give you a quick timeline. Clapton is in the band back in 1963. So very early, way, way before Cream or, you know, Clapton was just a band member. He was nobody. And they had some big hits. This is when they had their biggest hits, actually. Clapton then kind of quickly outgrows the band, moves on to do bluesier stuff. I think he joins Blues Breakers. And then later after that forms Cream, he recommends Paige to join the band at that time because he was this studio musician who was who was bouncing around there at a similar age. This is probably 63, 64, something like that. Paige doesn't want to leave the lucrative gig at that point, uh, but also doesn't want to be involved in the politics that he sees going on in this band, joining an already successful band. He just, it seems lame to him. So he recommends Jeff Beck, who's his friend. A couple years later, though, Paige joins the Yardbirds on bass as a fill-in and plays some gigs with them. And after a little bit of that, the bass player comes back from being sick and then Paige gets roped into being guitar player number two. But at this point, the Yardbirds are 
highly successful. They were opening for the Rolling Stones on that same tour that we talked about in the Ike and Tina Turner episode or the Tina Turner episode that that they were also opening on. The Yardbirds were one of the co-openers. But they had kind of passed their prime, their hipness, right? One of the things this book got across about the UK scene was that things were moving really fast. The trends were, were changing really quickly. And so the Yardbirds seemed cool in, say, 1964. But then by 1966, old hat, hip kids were all into American blues and, you know, trying to redefine yeah. those boundaries. Right. So Paige was like over it pretty quickly. Well, one of the things that that I feel like that book also got across is the ridiculous unprofessionalism of Jeff Beck. And yes. I think that this is this is a theme that's going to come up in this episode for me a couple of times. Jimmy Page was very good at being a rock star. He was, I don't think he's a guitar god, but I think that when it comes to being a rock star, like being able to show up and perform and not be a crazy fucking asshole, he knocks it out of the park on that. There's an anecdote about Jeff Beck at a show for the Yardbirds being on stage and getting upset, and he kicks his amplifier out the window on stage (laughs) in the middle of a set, and it's a big amplifier, and there was a dude like walking by underneath the window. And the only reason that it didn't fall from the second story window and kill this guy is because it had like a hardwired plug that got jammed up and like held it from falling and killing this guy. But then also like, what the fuck are you going to do? You're on stage. You're going to continue the set. The guy's amps hanging out the fucking window. Like (laughs) who does that? Show must go on. That's kind of shitty. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Agreed. He was wildly unpredictable, wildly unprofessional. And so, I wanted to go back over this partly because in the first episode, and maybe even subsequently, we were kind of lavishing with praises. I think he is definitely, undisputedly, a technically better player than Paige. And I get the impression Paige kind of even knew that. But he was so unprofessional. He would walk off of shows in the middle or he would walk out of tours. One of the ways that the Yardbirds... Because it's kind of a corporation at this point, right? They're just trying to keep the tour running for whatever teeny boppers in America want to see the old hits, whatever it is. And one of the ways they got him to cooperate was by agreeing to give Jeff Beck his own solo studio time. So what does he do with this? This is really, I think, the inciting event for Led Zeppelin is they have a recording session. Jimmy and Jeff Beck come to the session, but they don't want to involve the other Yardbirds. And they're kind of being clandestine about pulling people out of other bands anyway. But they start to assemble a supergroup. Keith Moon's at the session. This guy, Nicky Hopkins, is at the session. And then Jonesy shows up at the session, and they assemble to write and record what becomes Beck's Bolero. Let's play a little clip of that now. I think this is important in the timeline is because this was in 1966. So this song is actually really ahead of its time, which I I didn't realize because it didn't come out until like two years later, weirdly. 66. Right. That is a hip sound for 66. It's pre-Cream. It's pre-Jimi Hendrix. Pre-Hendrix, right, right. Certainly pre-Zeppelin. 
And so it was very forward thinking. Unfortunately, it kind of got, for whatever reason, it, I, I think it was only released as a single, maybe like a year and a half later. And then it made it to Jeff Beck's Truth album, which we referenced as coming out shortly before Led Zeppelin 1. And by then, the sound had kind of already matured. But this is a big part. That session, I think, was a lot of fun for Jimmy. And he was like, yeah, this is the kind of situation I want. In fact, I think he originally thought he was going to reassemble that very band with Keith Moon, Jonesy, and Jeff Beck in it. That would have been dope. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Beck's Bolero sounds pretty dope. It is a pretty great song. I'm pretty fr- pretty familiar with it, I say it. Like, I've never heard this tune before. <laughs> There's definitely like a guitar rhythm thing in there that I can't place what Led Zeppelin song it's on, but I feel like that, I don't know if that's a direct lift or just that that was floating around in the ether and, and both guys grabbed it. But Jimmy Page supposedly started playing the bolero rhythm on a 12-string guitar, and then Jeff Beck put the lead lines over it, and so there's been a dispute as to who owns the, who actually ah. wrote that song. And okay. I think Beck is like, yeah, you played a known musical modality and used that, and then I put the thing over it that differentiated it. And Jimmy Page is like, yeah, but I started playing the fucking song, and then you were like, oh, I'm going to put this lick over it, and I wrote the song. Jimmy Page who has never taken anybody else's song and claimed <laughs> that it's his own. No history. There are many writing disputes in his, <laughs> right. in his future, yeah. rest assured. So this is just practice. But okay, this is, this is the last uh, timeline point. So then basically what happens shortly after that is Jeff Beck gets fired from the Yardbirds for this terrible behavior. And Jimmy stays on briefly, but other members kind of fall out. The band falls apart quickly. And at the end of it, he is somehow the last remaining member, and he's left with the rights to the band name. And not only the rights to the band name, but some tour dates booked, and he doesn't have a band anymore. And so that, we, we kind of mentioned it in the first episode, but that's why Led Zeppelin is ultimately pulled together in August of 1968, and they need to go play their kind of warm-ups for, before they record Led Zeppelin 1 as a band, are to go play these shows in Scandinavia as the Yardbirds. So those are the first shows they go and play in the fall of 1968. Are they doing Yardbird, Yardbirds material there, or are they doing original stuff? Good, good question. The, the audience is just very confused. Well, first question, is anything Led Zeppelin's ever done original? Boosh. Right, yeah. <laughs> no, you know, they're doing a mixture. They're doing a mixture. They're doing Yardbird okay. stuff. But I think the context is kind of like, or what this book helped me understand was how common it was to do these medleys of American blues tunes. And the hipsters in the U.K., would do a couple things. You know, one, there were just like standards that people would do, like Train Kept a Rollin', was just a band, you know, a song that a lot of bands would do or at least touch on or Hey Little Schoolgirl or or it's versions of that, Muddy Waters tunes, things like that, right? And I'm not saying that apologizes for the various stealing that we're going to talk about from Led Zeppelin, but that gives it a little bit of context. The, the main thing that these bands would try to do is they would go crate diving at record stores trying to find a record and then a song from some American blues musician that no other band was currently covering and then reinterpret that song. And so, you know what I mean? It was like new to the audiences they were playing to. It's like early sampling, except they're actually, you know, it's like kind of going, going to find the obscure, but cool thing. That said, that context makes it even worse to me that if you recall in Led Zeppelin one, we talked about how they not only you shook me was one of the tracks on Led Zeppelin one, Willie Dixon, I want to say, is the original author. But it wasn't just that. That would be an okay 
thing to me. But the the thing that we really called out, which I think is still reasonable to call out, is that they stole the arrangement of that tune from Jeff Beck. That's what seems uncool yeah. about it, right? Or more, even more uncool, maybe. Well, to maybe so, two two negatives sort of cancel out, you know? <laughs> yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> so then, so the band gets together, and I think another piece of context here, right, is that you see if you can you can sense any of this, but there's a north south divide in the band because Plant and Bonzo are from what's called the Midlands, but they're considered northerners. They're from up in the Birmingham area, like where Black Sabbath is from, and generally considered sort of country mice compared to Page and Jonesy, who are who grew up in London or around London. And there's a lot of tender, and not to mention the fact that they're like four or five years younger than those guys. So there's oh, this like there's a big age gap there. I didn't realize that. Totally. When Plant first starts singing with them, he was gigging and stuff in bands, but he's 20 when they record LZ One, which I'm surprised Greta Van Fleet hasn't come up yet since Adam, uh, sorry, Alan <laughs> seems to like to bring them up. But it made me think, man, like, they're just fun to hate. But basically, Robert Plant in the early days was getting some of the same criticisms that we're giving that guy. I know it's not the same apples to apples comparison. That he sucks. <laughs> that he's like a twee. Did he like wear like full? Did he wear guy. onesies with like Indian feathers but yes, around his head? That's what I'm saying. That that aspect of it. I think the thing you have to add on to Greta Van Fleet is that they are obviously trying to sound like a band that already exists. That makes it extra lame. But Plant was definitely called out for the exact same reason what's this blonde dude up there singing blue american blues who does he think he is wearing flowers in his hair yeah not only like flowers in his hair but like super tight jeans and like an open buttoned shirt and jimmy page has got like pirate ruffles all over him all over the place and they're like they probably looked pretty damn bizarre and i gotta say i like to think of myself as like a pretty with it guy but if I was watching them back in the day, I'm sure I'd be talking just as much shit as Alan talks on Greta Van Fleet, who, by the way, I've never heard one fucking note of. And I have no, yeah, you have. No you spent the last week listening to Led Zeppelin. You've definitely heard yeah. Greta Van Fleet. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I think the other piece of context when I listen back to number one that we kind of missed and that this book got across in terms of their their appeal as an early band was just how fucking loud they were. Like, that's what everyone talks about seeing Led Zeppelin in these first couple of years. They literally just burst eardrums. They were, I don't know why that was a thing, but apparently it was a thing to turn the guitars and, you know, Bonzo's playing the drums so hard. The rest of the band turns up. It just felt, felt like to a man, everybody talked about the loudness factor. Well, was this a point in music history where like the amp power was, was getting better or like, was this just like, no, we're fucking loud. Probably, but I maybe. Well, but also you turn the amps up really loud and you get that natural distortion on them and you get that crunchy sound. And, you know, if you keep it at 65%, you're not getting that crunchiness. You're getting a real clean sound. You turn that up to 85, 90, 95%, you start getting some real crunch on that. That's probably added a lot to that, like, heaviness that they were looking for. Yeah, for sure. I do like how they talked about how Bonham was continually getting kicked out of bands and leaving bands basically for being just number one, a, a madman who would punch people in the face for no reason at all. But also they would just get banned from establishments for being too loud. And they're like, we're just trying to get over the drums. <laughs> the, so the punching in the face we can live with. It's a loud yeah. drums. We though. can live with assault, yeah. but <laughs> we've seen that before, but the volume, this is, yeah. this is untenable. Yeah. Okay. I think that brings us up to, to modern times here. What are your general impressions of Led Zeppelin 2? Maybe let's kick it first to Tom. Man, so I said it before. 
you know, John Paul Jones is their secret weapon. And also Robert Plant is their secret weapon. And also John Bonham is their secret weapon. And I'm not going to include Jimmy Page on that list because I feel like he gets a lot of praise. He's not terrible on this album, but I do really think that it's a showcase for the vocal talents of Robert Plant. I think it's a showcase for John Paul Jones because the bass on this is fucking kicking. And Bonham's a monster as always. I really liked the way that the vocal melodies were constructed. You can tell that Robert Plant doesn't play an instrument in the band and he's not hemmed to the cadence of the chord changes and stuff in a way that is very freeing and the really good lead singers can use that to great effect. Like a a guy like like Maynard James Keenan from uh from Tool or something. And certainly not like early Ozzy style where he's just following what the instruments are doing. He's free and you can tell. And they exude a ton of sex. It's just some sexy music. <laughs> I really dig it. <laughs> I can I just comment quickly on Page. I think I think where he deserves the credit, well, he deserves credit for being a good guitar player and an innovative guitar player. But as a producer, I think that's where his real influences felt. And we talked a little bit last time about Glenn Johns engineering the record. But in fact, what I learned more context was that. Glenn Johns and Jimmy Page, first of all, Glenn Johns was already an established producer. He had been working this session circuit. He knew Jimmy Page both from growing up and from that circuit. And Jimmy Page and he had a handshake deal that he would get co-producer credit on Led Zeppelin 1. But when the time came and that deal wasn't on paper, Jimmy Page said, fuck off, I'm the producer. Not so enough they of they millions and millions to go around. <laughs> so what do you do? So what do you do when that happens? You hire his brother Andy Johns. It's that simple. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll we'll get more into the production of the record. Andy is true. Glenn Johns' brother Andy Johns also engineered some of this record, but it was also this record was recorded all around the world in various studios, and then mixed by by Jimmy Page and um, another guy called Eddie Kramer in New York. And but I think Jimmy Page deserves credit for a lot of that. I would say definitely, I'll just give my thoughts now, more sophisticated songs versus Led Zeppelin 1, just better constructions, pretty much in every way. I really noticed the bass as well, not just for being great, but specifically the difference that he was more willing to play as a counter melody to like everything else that was going on. You know, he has his pocket, Jonesy has his pockets on Led Zeppelin 1. He makes his presence felt, no doubt about it. But in this it felt more like he was just a fourth melodic element. And yes, I believe the drums are also a melodic element. I think him and Plant drive the melodies, definitely. I had a similar thought, and I know, you know, I sort of had a sense that it would sound cliche kind of coming from me, that that I felt like this was a, like an extremely bass-forward record. But I think the, the thing that I was sort of more surprised with, and like we covered a few Led Zeppelin songs recently, and Jonesy was very much out of that like Motown stacks bass style, the James Jamerson thing, which didn't really occur to me. I never really put those two things together. It just his dynamics, his like staccato and control, the way he like holds his notes for different times, the melody. I mean, it's just it's really top shelf bass work throughout. We should just make a quick plug too that he also plays the keyboards on all the Led Zeppelin songs. 
and really well. Yeah, quite really well. well. Yeah, 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 yeah. Wait, so is he to, is he to blame for the the thank you outro? <laughs> he must hey, have. all right. And the, the intro there, and the but... entire rest of the song, yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right, what do you think, Adam? We need to add another list to your drinking game, which is whenever somebody says, listen to this with headphones, or I haven't listened to this before in headphones. <laughs> I had never listened to this before in headphones. And it was a real treat this week to close my eyes and listen to what they did with the mix. It's really well done. It engulfs you. And it was also one of the first times that I was able to truly sense that kind of the the famous thing that Paige did with miking the amp, which was he would do one up close and one far away. And throughout this album, if you close your eyes, you hear him hit hard on and like the amp is on the left, and then you hear a natural mm-hmm. echo. I was wondering from the room was producing that hit you in the right, so it actually feels like you're standing in the room because you hear it hard on your left from the amp and an echo from the room in the right speaker. And it was just a, a really well thought out and very cool way to, to from an engineering standpoint. So something I I never really appreciated till this week. Years ago, I read a uh, tape op article with eddie kramer talking about this and a bunch of other you know stuff he produced um, but he talked specifically about jimmy page getting guitar sounds and i could never any and he talked about uh, how he would go about it uh, and basically like you said he would he would close mic the amp and then he would put another microphone in the room and he talked about like jimmy page walking around the room like holding the microphone it wasn't clear if they were playing like reamping a track or if somebody else is playing oh, the guitar nice but jimmy okay. page is walking around with headphones on looking for where he wants the second <laughs> mic to be the sweet spot yeah. oh that's crazy i think in some cases they must have re remiked it or sorry replayed it through the through the amp right and yeah because they it, or through some kind of plate reverb or something you know because you got to keep in mind that there were only analog effects back there's really no outboard gear at this point so they're in a real right. experimental phase the other thing he did and by the way that technique that we're talking about right now can be heard in the first seconds of whole lot of love where the guitar is hard panned to one side and then you hear it, an echo of it like on the other back. side. Yeah. You need yeah, another thing he does a lot is what he called reverse reverb, which is where you flip the tape over and then you bounce just the reverb sound to its own track. And then when you flip the tape back around, it has the effect of having the reverb before the hit. Oh, that's awesome. I, I got to tell you, I thought wow. that that double mic sound that was coming in through the other channel, I thought that was imperfect isolation. And that that was the mic on the bass amp that was getting the guitar yeah, amp. So, so that, that's interesting. So okay. th- this is a little different, but he doesn't go into it in as much detail in the tape op article. But Eddie Kramer did talk about how some of the effects, specifically on Whole Lot of Love and on another song, um, were 
sort of steering into the skid, right? They experimented with some stuff. Some stuff bled over to other tracks. The way sure. I understood it was more of like an electric magnetic problem, right? Hmm. Like they tried some vocal stuff and they turned it down to zero. And I was like, fuck, it's still on there. Like now it's on there. Oh, that's the whole way down inside yeah, part. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So there were times where things, he didn't love things, but he was like, I can't get it off. So I'll have to do something. Just own it. So now I'll just yeah. like swing it around from left to right because like, yeah, yeah. So, yeah there are some, some, it's fucking bold Some moments yeah. yeah yeah bold so i believe that jimmy page also gets soul mixing or sorry soul production credit on this but yeah he clearly had help from this guy eddie kramer who also engineered and mixed um axis bold as love and are you experienced and I, a bunch of other records but those come to mind just some of bullshit <laughs> some of the bullshit <laughs> but i would say specifically with this record it must have been a challenge mixing it because they recorded it literally all over the world they would because they were on tour for led zeppelin one and so some tracks were done and you know they'd come into london studio for a day they'd do uh, the band tracking one song and then they'd overdub it in Vancouver, Canada. And then they would do some stuff in LA and then do some stuff in New York. And it was like all over the map. So that is inherently for those who don't know, bringing all that into consistency, including piecing song, different song pieces together from those different places is quite a challenge. I would imagine. I mean, also just think about the reality that you are likely physically carrying the tape with you on tour <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. or someone is nope. right somebody's someone like is. bottom was not carrying it <laughs> no. <laughs> no you take the tapes to vancouver i'll see you in 10 days bottom's like i get some blood and teeth on this tape somehow uh <laughs> the guy looked at me in the pub and i bashed him in the face 14 times with it so it's funny you mention that because there is sort of a fifth member of the band that we haven't mentioned yet which is the manager peter grant who was straight up gangster and who would be the guy. Yeah, he would sound like a huge piece of shit. He was probably <laughs> carrying the, the tape around, but he would also brawl at the at the slightest <laughs> provocation. He was the guy who, Knight. when Jimmy Page was trying to get his deal to make a new album as Led Zeppelin for Led Zeppelin 1, the guy who was the producer for Jeff Beck's Truth, he had a deal where... Grant got management and he got production and like that was the deal. And so he Jimmy Page is like there's no fucking way that this guy's this guy's going to produce my album. I think he did a shit job with Jeff Beck's Truth. And so uh, Grant goes to him and says, "Hey man, I'm dying. I am I only have a few months left to live. I'm trying to give my kids as much money as I can. So can you just give up your rights on this new Jimmy Page project? And the guy's like, dude, for a friend like you, absolutely oh no problem. God. I'll give up my production rights on it. And his wife was like, What the fuck are you doing? Why would you do that? Like Holy shit. Yeah. Wow. Kind of an asshole. Phil, did you say Suge Knight earlier? Did I hear that? <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah. That's just well, no, and apparently he had uh, members of the local like crime syndicates going up to this guy's studio and like demanding protection money basically just to intimidate the shit out of him. So he'd sort of be like, you know, I think I might want to get out of this game. I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Damn. Boosh. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I think we're already kind of talking about Whole Lot of Love, so why don't we dive back in to Whole Lot of Love and talk about that song specifically.
by the way, I just Wikipedia'd Peter Grant. I mean, his photo, he looks like a Dothraki or something. <laughs> have, have another shot, folks. Yeah. We just referenced it. <laughs> Ding! I mean, a whole lot of love. If picked bass has ever ruined a song, this is the one. I'm just kidding. It's the perfect fucking choice for the song. It sounds so good. It sounds I'm surprised so you said good. if it's ever ruined. <laughs> so it's funny because Led Zeppelin is now thought of, or some people say they're the first heavy metal group. And I think we, we kind of laughed at that on Led Zeppelin 1. I think this is the first true oh, yeah. heavy metal riff. This is just an iconic all-time riff. I This is one of those things, you know, going back to the, you know, being like 15 and, and learning guitar. I remember, and I remember learning this riff, in, learning in air quotes, and just feeling so accomplished. And it just felt yeah. so, like, satisfying. And then looking back, you're like, it's very basic but it's just fucking killer well imagine being in a band and writing music at a time where like a riff like this wasn't taken yet like it's just they're all there they're all available yeah they're all available for the taking but this does fucking rip this this song is great (laughs) this song rips it's totally awesome the guitar solo is awesome it has cool chromaticism right it has that cool like theremin solo that builds up to it right it's awesome but can you imagine being in a band and letting these lyrics slide. Okay, these days. let's talk about the lyrics. <laughs> I actually kind of like these lyrics. Yeah. Oh, that's well. Guess who wrote them? Uh, not Robert Plant. <laughs> no, Tom Monahan. No. So uh, yeah. So this borrows liberally, we can say, from Muddy Waters. You need love. It also is adapted <laughs> from the Small Faces version of that same Muddy Waters song from 1966. Yeah, I listened to that one this week. Yeah, definite borrowing. So here's what Muddy says in the lyrics. You got yearning, I've got burning. Baby, way down inside, woman, you need love. You gotta have some love. I'm gonna give you some love. Pretty much a direct rip. And then you're like, well, Robert Plant wrote the fool in school in line. No, that was on the Small Faces track where they add... You foolin', woman, you need coolin'. This is the best, the best line. Yeah. I'm gonna send you right back to schoolin'. That's literally the Vanilla Ice when he talks about stealing the uh, under pressure baseline. He's like, no, no, <laughs> dun, no, we dun, did the dun, like, dun, we dun, added dun, the yeah, one right. note into there. <laughs> but do any of these other songs subtly reference dick size when he says, "I'm gonna give you every inch of my love"? Exactly, <laughs> that's, every inch of my. That's what love. he added. Give him credit yep. where credit's due. Yeah. So. The skeeviness is really Robert Plant's <laughs> right. addition. He he adds. I mean, it's, he adds it's, it is pretty pure, unadulterated sex. I got to give it to him. This song is this song is sexy. This is like Robert Plant very famously was dating two sisters at the exact same time, and then decided he had to marry one in 1968 when he knocked her up. Was married to her for like ten years, and then after he divorced her, had a baby with her sister again. <laughs> No. Like, you cannot pull that off if you are not just, like, the sexiest dude in the world. God. (laughs) Can you break that down one more time? (laughs) At the same time, he's living with one sister and fucking her, obviously, and fucking another sister. He knocks up one of the two sisters, marries that sister, is married for 10 years, has three kids, gets divorced, and then has a kid with the other sister again. So the chances oh that he wasn't God. also fucking that sister the entire time they were married are pretty low wow. at that point. <laughs> These guys <laughs> fucked everything that moved. They epitomized rock star lifestyle on these tours. They really thought they were invincible. And the groupie game was outlandish, to say the least. 
But we're not here to talk about groupies, are we? We're no, here. No, no, no. no, I mean a little bit, maybe, but not not right now. Just a little, just a tad, just a tad. Right and, now, and we they, have to talk about. They actually the... get well. They actually get worse as as the records go on. So I think we should save some of the Led Zeppelin oh, stories enough, for enough. those future episodes. I want to talk about how this song is sixty percent breakdown. Yeah. This song is mostly breakdown. They have one riff, and they made a five and a half minute song out of it. And you don't get sick of it because for like three and a half minutes of that, it's breakdown. And I'll be damned if it doesn't fucking work. You get a little sick of it. To quote them, there's there's not a whole lot of song uh, in here. Dude. Let's talk about the breakdown just briefly because we did reference it earlier, but I want to make sure people know what we're talking about. There is this thing that happens at four at timestamp of four minutes, which is a tape bleed problem. And it's a guide vocal. It started as a guide vocal from Robert Plant, like from a previous take or Maybe it was the live take, and then they went back over it with the with the final vocal. But it was bleeding over, and they couldn't get rid of it. And the nature of these organic methods, magnetic strips of tape, right? You couldn't get rid of it, or maybe it was an electronic problem. And so they leaned into the skid, as I think Phil said, and just turned it up and added reverb to it. So let's play that now. Way down inside One more You're talking about breakdown number two, because breakdown number one happens a minute and 18 into the song. Like, I, I try to diagram it out. The whole band doesn't even kick in until 34 seconds into the song. And then at a minute and 18, they drop out. They drop out. And they don't come back in until three minutes and 20 seconds into the song. And then they're in until three minutes and 58 seconds into the song. For for, for a blistering guitar solo. That is for like when they do the weird breakdown and then they come back in for like the, yeah, the kick-ass guitar solo. And then they're only playing for another 38 seconds before they go to another breakdown. So many breakdowns. I mean, it's a good playbook for how to take a one riff and stretch it into a six minute song or whatever this is those hits on that guitar solo though are fucking killer don't don't yeah i i wanted to touch on so alan you just talked about the the, the kick back in if you cut out moby dick which is just drum show off right which is awesome well you know but i feel like bonham's most appealing work on this album are super simple fills that are just well timed like the fill in here a, a, a toddler could do it's just a single stroke, 16th note, da, 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 but it so works right there. And there, it's not like it's triplets and weird time signatures and double bass. Right, it's not like Neil it's Pert. just a snare fill, but he kills it's, it. He doesn't the, overplay. That's his thing. The dr- he doesn't right. overplay. Well, he doesn't it's, overplay yeah, in terms yeah. of trying to do too much showiness, but it sounds like he broke a stick halfway through and had to grab another one because he is yeah. fucking hammering <laughs> that snare drum. Crushing it. Seven bottles of Jack Daniels deep. <laughs> oh, my God. Can we talk about how the fact that on the day that he died, they estimated that he had like over 45 shots of alcohol over the course of a day? Oh, my God. Jesus it's like Andre Christ. the Giant. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to the next track on our focus list. What is and what should never be? If I say to you tomorrow... Take my hand, child, come with me It's to a castle I will take you 
track and the previous track whole lot of love like they're sort of establishing like what will become the standard in mixing rock music right you've got the bass down the middle you got the drums basically down the middle in a sort of three-dimensional sort of scenario you've got guitars hard panned whether that's an effect or you know whatever however they go to do it and then in this song very interestingly i think they use the double vocal to just absolutely amazing effect sometimes doing the sort of beatles john lennon double vocal other time doing like tape flanging effects yeah. with it and other times just straight going off as two separate vocals it's really cool sounds great classic Classic it's a good it. point. I thought at first, let's talk about the vocal because it kicks right in with just a vocal. And I was wondering what that effect mm-hmm. was. And it sounds like a phaser, right? But they didn't have that outboard gear. It's another analog effect created with two tape machines that are out of phase with each other. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is this is this is a tape flanging. That's manual crazy. Flanging. Yeah, manual flanging, right? So they record the track and then they dump it to another tape player and then they play it back in perfectly aligned. But they sort of just touch the tape on the one that's playing back in and between the, basically the the timing mechanisms and tape deck two will try to align the speed and it'll create that subtle like you know I, it's a called flanging that weird sound you hear so it's technically a super short digital delay like insanely short alan you know what this song had that i thought of you when i listened to it well at first it's quiet then it gets loud, no, I can- and then it gets quiet. But <laughs> but the Pixies were unique because they went loud, quiet, loud. Zeppelin went quiet, loud, quiet. So, Dude, you, uh, you hacked my my notebook here because <laughs> uh, sorry, <laughs> sorry. Did I with this your, and, and ramble on, I made a note of dynamics weren't a thing. I guess before you know, nineteen eighty eight. I have I have the same note, and I've been thinking about it ever since. I wasn't on the Pixies episode, but yeah, it's you hear it everywhere because it's omnipresent in all of recorded music. Yeah, <laughs> I do. This song, like again, I'm I, I don't want to be a broken record here, but like, I mean, the bass on this song, I, so I think what's really cool is that in so much of rock music on bass, rarely does anyone play above like the fifth fret, right? So you're hitting the this these like mids that just cut through. And not in like an aggressive way, but they they carry the tune really, really well. And I think with this song too, like if you go through their songs in a linear way, right? You go through Led Zeppelin one, then you get to this as like the second tune. Up to that point, like this might have been their their best written song in terms of like songcraft and composition. You know, it's not plant over the top screaming. Like it's this is just a nice sweet sweet tune well my my note on this is that without the bass this is a pretty basic song there's not a ton going on i'm pretty sure that that guitar that strummy guitar is out of tune adam you can correct me if i'm wrong on this one a little bit a little bit a little bit but the bass is the main melodic driver of this song in a way that you don't really see 
again, you'd hear it in the Motown stuff. You'd hear the really bass, bouncy bass in Motown, but they would have that mixed way down. This was mixed way up. Give credit to Page because I know that he was he had control over the mixing board and he knew what to showcase in this song, and it wasn't him. Yeah. Again, we said it on one, but yeah, I totally agree with what you guys are saying, and we said it on one too. There's a lot of restraint, both from drums, from guitar. It's not the instruments take their turns, and there's a lot of space left in the majority of the arrangements. And I think you have to credit that, you know, in large part to Paige, who's kind of, even if he's not the full producer, he's running the show in terms of arranging the material. So yeah, I think this is super successful. I couldn't help but think of our takedown of Babe, I'm Gonna Leave You as track two, <laughs> the slowdown, the come down song on Led Zeppelin 1. It's just way more successful than that song. I know it's not really a fair comparison. And I have this listed as longest song title that actually works for me. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is an accolade without putting their hats on too. Yeah, right. What do they also? They they do have some pretty long song titles. Don't they also have like, "Over the Hills and Far Away"? That song title That's, sucks. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't say it was good. I said it was I'm not, long. I'm not saying the song <laughs> sucks. <laughs> I'm just saying the title. No, I'm saying normally if the title's this long, it's not. I don't have a lot of faith in it. But I like this title. That's what I'm trying to say. I, I've got a question. Uh, is this sort of for Rob? And I, I'm going to guess the answer is no, you know, especially considering Zeppelin steals so much. Is this the first instance of gong in a <laughs> oh. rock song? This gong yeah. at 3.30 right nice. before the, like, the guitars toss it back and be. forth. It's really a great yeah. choice. I think the first gong. time I heard it was, I had never picked up on this in like the radio, that you know, driving your car. Like it never came through. But when I listened to it with headphones again, it definitely shook me out of my my stupor of like, damn, Gong. It's like, are they just throwing everything into the well, kitchen I sink feel like here? We've all experienced this with not only drummers but various musicians. Where they're like, I bought the fucking Gong, okay? I I'm gotta use, use the it. Gong, right? All right? I like, gotta use it on. You know how much money I spent on that Gong? It was a four hundred dollars fucking Gong. <laughs> that Gong is showing up on a song. It's, it's just point. sitting there <laughs> at every gig. There's gong on the on the mega EP, by the way. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say cut to the houses for the holy tour where they're just rolling in cash on the private jet. We got the jet gong. We got the American gong. We got the UK gong. Yeah, I mean, if you need your gong sample pack, like mega, I remember. So we got a whole bunch of dope Phil and Adam. Footage. You will both no, re- yes. both remember from playing in Gellner when Mike bought that pang symbol. And yeah, it was just the China sh- type. Sh- yep. Yep. Just Used like, it everywhere. And I got to give him, you know, I got to give it to him. He's like, I bought the fucking symbol. What am I going to do? I'm going to use I got to stand for it. It's right there. I'm going to hit it. I don't care if it fits in the song. I'm going to hit it. God damn it. I can't regret this purchase. My left ear just <laughs> doesn't it's, hear yeah, high end. My right ear doesn't hear high end. Right. The same as my left, because that's, that's the side that we stood on. <laughs> I blame that symbol. So speaking of that band, we did this song. We should not have done this song. And let me explain why we should not have done this song. I had a knockoff Stratocaster that had a giant crack down the back of it because it fell <laughs> off a table one time. I could not afford a new guitar. I think they call that mojo. This this guitar was constantly out of tune. For some reason, we tried this song. And Phil, you decided to let me try the slide solo. Hmm. Now, the thing with doing a slide solo is that you can compensate for an out-of-tune guitar. And my ear is pretty good. But when it came time to the dueling guitar, my guitar was so out of tune. It sounded like shit. I mean, just atrocious. I couldn't hit the high notes. It was just a train wreck. 
And I'm sure that really, really <laughs> built your confidence for the everybody I know's gonna know her real well part that you are probably saying. That's a yeah. Oh my lord! <laughs> you mean Tom? I, I sung it in a, an octave lower. It was very anticlimactic. Speaking of that section, though, I fear that I've quelled Phil's need to mention hard panning again. But just in case anyone doesn't know what hard panning oh, is, great example. <laughs> It starts at 3.30. For my whole life, I thought it was two separate guitars like two separate tracks and then you could hear it quickly being you know moved left to right so that's this again something else if only yeah. we knew that he back did, in the he... day when we tried to perform this song we could <laughs> just, just had phil do it. Don't do it. no 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 it's definitely two guitars we have to have two guitars true to the one. vision <laughs> just have the roadie run around with the amp <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all the roadies we had back in the day, which was all of us, including the one time that we were going to a gig and Alan, uh, Adam uh, blew his knee out trying to carry an amplifier down a set of stairs and we had to cancel the show. It was a PA speaker. It wasn't carrying the Hammond organ, huh? No, no, no. No, it was. Uh, take a drink. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Okay. Long let's episode. Long episode. All right, here we let's go. Let's move it along. <laughs> Thank you for that. And now let's... Let's play the next song on the focus list, which is called Thank You. If the sun refused to shine, I would still be loving you. When mountains crumble to the sea, there will still be you and me. Speaking of covers, I heard two guys on this call cover this song pretty recently. It's Who? A fun tune. You guys? This song fucking sucks. Really? <laughs> <laughs> we we did not do. By the way, it, first of all, Burn. it was a, it was a request for a it was a private party, and the oh okay the subject of the party is that what you call them? I don't even know. <laughs> the host, the host, <laughs> subject. <laughs> Subjects of said party. Yes. Oh, so you guys were whores. You did it for money. <laughs> I, I mean, not, I'm not making money playing music any other way. Aren't we, aren't we all whores? Okay, so, but just to, def- I mean, I mark this as the low point as well, but it's a pretty high low point. Let's be honest. I, I think totally it is agree with that. Yeah. One of their more successful songs in this ilk of this ilk. And it points to the future, which is Led Zeppelin 3, where they get way more acoustic and kind of like this. This this song, I actually there's a part. It's like a harmony, and it's one moment where I actually wonder if it's someone else. Are you talking about voice. little drops of rain? Yeah. That's that's part of yeah. That mess. part could could that be John, I think Paul, John Jones? Paul Jones is a good enough yes. musician. You would have hit those notes because that's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder. There was tell later. I think it was in the physical graffiti sessions where Plant had to have vocal surgery because like he was pushing so hard every night 
that he would have to rest his vocals and like his management of that was a big factor. They didn't specifically mention it in this era, but I just wonder if his vocal timbre does kind of shift because he's wailing so hard and they're on tour while they're doing this, that kind of thing. Well, I think for this song, we alluded to this, or I did anyway earlier. The organ work is nice. It's a nice sort of bookend, but I mean, why does it stretch on for so long? And then it stops. And then you're like, all right, thank God. And then it's like, oh, no, you're you're done. You're, you're back again. Gotcha. Got to pen out that album side, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I wonder if that was the reason why. That's funny. I don't think 30, how much is it, 30 seconds? It's not that long, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's going to make the difference. I noticed this time around, or it was pointed out to me, that the lyrics feel quite similar to Jimi Hendrix, If Six Was Nine. Hmm. If the sun refused to shine. Yeah, yeah. If all the hippies cut their hair, I don't care. I'd if, still be right. loving you. It just it just feels like he just listened to that on the radio and he just he just jumped in there and did the vocal take. And I got the impression that Plant would just kind of scribble away right before the take, kind of Anthony Kiedis style. <laughs> oh man, that's the first time I've ever heard Paige and Kiedis in the same <laughs> sense. Another piece of context for the song, though, is that he wrote this song for his wife. You mean for the sister? Well, no, I was going to say, if you're also banging her sister and you're out there just right. running through every slag that it's comes to your show, one. you got to be like, I wrote this one for you. Yeah. Th- oh, I've been thinking about you this entire tour. I definitely haven't been getting like backstage blowjobs during, you know. Yeah. Thank you. I really appreciate you looking the other way while I fuck every groupie yeah. on the and road. And thank you for not oh divorcing me and taking millions and millions of dollars away from me. I appreciate that. Look, sweetheart. I wrote you a song. I also have herpes. (laughs) It's not a great song, but hey, I still wrote you one. (laughs) She's like, you wrote a whole lot of love for your groupies, and you wrote thank you for me. I don't know about this. It's not not even trade. All right, moving on to Heartbreaker. songs you learn when you're 15 and speaking of songs that me and adam and phil have performed live in fact one time when we played at that bar in elkton where we all decided to go to a goodwill and buy ridiculous outfits to wear and phil you were doing the the behind the the back guitar solo that -hmm. was also the bar where when we were done and I was getting picked up by my mom after that show. But there were like 45-year-old women who were hitting on us after we were done that oh, show. They were, they were going hard they on, the really young, were. on the young flesh. I don't know how many times you guys you guys played there, but I saw I went to that bar that you're talking about, and I definitely saw Phil play, play the guitar behind his head. I yeah, remember that specifically. Yeah. And I thought it was cool as shit. It was, it so, was cool as shit. At the time, it felt cool. It's, uh, I would never do anything like that now. <laughs> I feel embarrassed. That, yeah, why well, have fun? You know? right. Yeah, fuck fun. Fun is for youngsters. At, All right. at 16, that looks cool. At 41, that's like, all right, come on, right. buddy. What are you doing? But at 71, like 71 is going to be great. Yeah, good point. Like, that's you can get your arms point. above your shoulders. That's great. <laughs> uh, all right. Back to the actual song. 
Sorry. Yes. I don't feel like I have appropriately gushed enough about the fucking bass tone on this album. Oh, on the whole record. Dude. Oh my the God. Whole record. It sounds so fucking good that he sounds fucking amazing. I thought it was the guitar for a long time. It's that. Don't, oh, no. By the way, drink because I'm mouthing an instrument. (laughs) That is so dirty and so good. It's so fucking awesome. Well, is it a double stop? Because he's hitting two notes, right? It's not just a single note. He's got like two two tones. Yeah. So there's one other note that I want to make on this song before. I think it will maybe inform a lot of uh, the rest of the conversation, or maybe not. Who knows? But when they kick in that. That kick in at two fifty two that they do that um when they get to right around three twenty six they sort of step up the intensity on it, and you can hear the diaphragms on the microphone getting physically taxed crunching they are getting yeah, physically totally. taxed by the amount of volume that is coming their way yeah the, the air and it, it yeah no there's there's a crackle it's like sure. a step change in the song where it's like damn like you must have been fucking willing to make that happen and it's so good it sounds so awesome but i think a lot of these guitars are just recorded with an sm57 it's, you know, it is basic microphone technology, basic bitch shit from back in the day, you know? Yeah, and it's basically just a Fender jazz bass. Uh, I'm trying to find out what amp he was playing into. And kids, you can get all this equipment and you will never make this guitar tone ever <laughs> nah, again. I nah. I think I read that, that Jimmy, this is where Jimmy switched. He played the Telecaster, it's true, on Led Zeppelin 1 through some kind of Coronado Supro or some some amp like that. But page, but page, this is where Page flipped over to the Gibson through the Marshall stack, which is the more iconic sound for him. No, it sound it looks like he's rocking acoustic, like the earliest acoustic uh, solid states. I got to tell you, like John Paul Jones is essentially flawless on this album, with one exception, which is that there is a flub, there's a bass flub on this song, and I had never picked it up before. But when they're doing that run up from the sort of C minor version of the riff to the D minor version of the riff to the E minor version of the riff, when yep. he gets to the E minor version of the riff, he's supposed to hit that that um, that D that da na 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 no that's the the D note and he fucks it up on one of the times and it's a, I was I'd never noticed it before and it was a flub and it jarred me and it galled me so much. And then I had to be like, wait, Jimmy Page fucks up all the time on this album. It's constant. <laughs> John Paul Jones gets one fuck up, and I'm like, oh, one. God, he's done. Nope, garbage. Garbage player. <laughs> As a bass player who fucks up all the time, <laughs> it's hard for me to get uh, worked up about that. Yeah, no, as a bass player who fucks up significantly more than you, I'm sure. I, I should not have gotten so worked up about it, but I did. So I just wanted to point out, in many ways, I think I think it was even referenced, I can't remember who said it in the tweet-length review, that this band in general is like your high school girlfriend. This is a band you get into early if you're going to get into bands and rock and roll and classic rock. And I think of the song as broken into three parts. You have the opening section, you have the solo guitar section, and you have the kickback in with the extra guitar solo. I just, you know, I think we're all in the same boat. I used to think that section of soloed guitar was like the coolest thing that anyone could ever do. 
on the guitar. But now, it's still cool, don't get me wrong, but now it reads like a man who has almost no guitar technique. And compare that, (laughs) seriously, he was not a technique guy, versus, you know, what is it, 10, 12 maybe 14 years later, when does Eruptions come out? Eruptions is the answer to that part. Like 79, maybe. Oh, right. Okay, so nine right. years later, nine-ish yeah. years later. Yeah, totally. And it blows it out of the water. Once you've heard Eruptions, I just don't feel like you can really go back. But that said, when the band kicks back in, in Heartbreaker, the guitar solo that he lays down there, I think is amazing. Well, it's funny because I always said that, not always said, but this entire week I was thinking, Oh, did he have to have the band drop out so they didn't notice that he was like butchering all time and like feel on this one, you know? Like, but when the band comes nope. back in, he actually has he he's got the feel. It, it works well with it. Hold on, read this week that it was completely it was completely shoehorned in. Wow! No way! God damn it! Yes! Wow! The whole section was just recorded separately, just by him. And I don't even know, I, I didn't hear comment from the band as to whether or not they approved or not, because he was the wizard. He was the leader of the band, undisputedly, right? So uh, he might have just added in without their <laughs> askance. I mean, it was the 60s. They probably found out when the record came out. Yeah, right. 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 turn on the record calm, and right. fuck. Yeah. What well, they're recording this while they're on tour, and Paige yeah. is just yeah. sort of like behind the scenes making it work. Like they probably didn't even know. Yeah, Bottom's like, I've had thirty-seven beers today. I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, <laughs> and two two of the guys in this band are twenty-one years old and on tour for the first time, and to adoring crowds. Jesus. Like it was a time, dude. Oh god. Me- meanwhile, John Paul Jones is doing whatever he's doing, and Jimmy Page is dabbling in black magic <laughs> that, came, that, all, that stuff came later as did harder drugs i think came a little later they probably did some cocaine around this time and smoked some weed and stuff but i think the occult alistair crowley stuff and the heavy cocaine and other drug use kind of came as the years wore on because basically what we haven't mentioned yet right is they release lz1 and they start touring and they kind of don't stop for like four or five years it's exhausting and they're partying real fucking hard. And you know what I mean? And I think by the end of that run, they were they were supplementing. By like the end, Zeppelin 4. I think that you get into the occult and all that other shit when you're like, I already got tired of all of the sex. And then I started doing a bunch of drugs and I got tired of the drugs. And now I guess I get into Satan. Is that the way it goes? Like that's the progression. <laughs> I wouldn't know. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I never passed step one yet. <laughs> <laughs> okay let's let's round it out with the last song on the focus list it is ramble on leaves are falling all around time i was on my way thanks to you i'm much obliged for such a pleasant stay Yeah. 
this remains one of my favorite songs like of all time not just led zeppelin i think this song is just awesome and i don't get tired of it it does not have sweet home alabama syndrome even though i've probably heard it more times than i've heard sweet home alabama but yeah just the the acoustic work you know the constant struggle of trying to figure out how to make your acoustic and your strum pattern sound exactly like this and have yet to be able to you do know that, what so. my note on this is that jimmy page is a much better acoustic guitar player than he's an electric guitar player oh i would he's a yeah. pretty damn good acoustic guitar player yeah he is a great acoustic player this song like not that anyone is ever like hey play me something on bass but if anyone ever does ask or if i'm warming up almost 100 percent of the time i'm playing this bass line it's the best it's just the best it kicks so hard in the chorus too like the part in the verse like sort of like you know it it has all the moxie right like it has all the personality but it kicks so hard in the chorus and even like it's like it attacks you it's 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 great and even outside of the bass like something i really hadn't noticed much going back to like listening to a lot of this in the car this this sixteenth note like percussion. I don't know if that's just hand claps or if that's like. Oh yeah yeah yeah. That no, no, is, I, I have it. Yeah, let's, let's, let's talk, talk about, about that. that. Ooh, before yeah. we even before you jump in, I think everybody should suggest a possible source of that audio. So so I think it could be like bird wings flapping slowed down. Maybe it could be they're running around outside <laughs> with the mic chasing a bird. Yeah, 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 clapping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going with John Bonham using backwards drumsticks on a groupie's ass. <laughs> so I already know. I guess that was the yeah, last I, I guess. We'll, yeah, we'll yeah. tag it there. Actually, I don't know, because there's still some debate about this. It's been... I don't feel like Bonzo so, ever So it could be Bird said, Wings. Could be Bird Wings, but the, some of the... The best guess we have is based on a biography of John Bonham, A Thunder of Drums, which says that Bonzo used his bare hands to tap it out on an empty guitar case. That's pretty cool. That's what they called women oh. back in the day. Oh, <laughs> Jesus, dude. <laughs> Save that for LZ3, dog. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to say that I wholeheartedly agree with what Adam said. I even wrote, I've heard this song a fucking million times, and it's still really, really good. It is. It has to be one of their best songs, if not in the pantheon of best songs ever. And again... The word restraint comes to mind, and you just wouldn't think that restraint would be associated with a band like this. But I feel like the whole, the drums, maybe save the 16th notes, which I found a little more oppressive in headphones, to be clear, at the opening. But the guitar is like restrained. And then when it does come in, it's got this cool, eerie, he does that like guitar army thing at like two minutes in, the harmonized ghostly yeah, part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just a really cool sound. You're not even 100% sure it is a guitar, but it definitely is. He has a theremin credit on this album, and I think that that might be a theremin and well, guitar. There's definitely theremin on Whole Lot of Love. Uh, okay, yeah, nice. Yeah. I have to say, and this is a bold statement to say coming from a bass player, but I think quite possibly 
my favorite chromatic walk up on the bass is when like he's like ramble on bum 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 but now that little walk up there is so fucking awesome on the bass you guys yeah the rhythmic interplay like throughout so the song's good. construction so is good. just so great it's a masterclass in like how to make interesting rhythms if from a rock band and then one more comment is that somehow they basically just decided to take every single Robert Plant vocal take that he yeah. did for the outro of yep. the song and just include them all and smash them all and together. It fucking works. <laughs> it I don't. Does. It works really it's... well. But there's like nine distinct vocal takes or some ridiculous shit. But again, but I I think it works well, right? Because this is part of the weird like establishment of what a quote rock mix sounds like: bass and drums down the middle, guitars down the side, vocals down the middle. But the vocals have this weird freedom to go all over yeah, the place. Yeah. Hit that. Yeah, and, and they, in this case, swing, yeah, yeah, exactly. In this case, they just swing around two or three different tracks. I think that is going to close the discussion. We're going to vote in a moment but before we do and i'm very curious to see how the vote goes no i'm just kidding before we do i'm gonna lay some 1001 album complaints 100th episode stats on you so some people complain i've heard it in the comments thank you for emailing us we're collating all your pixies hate we'll get that out soon and i hear all your other (laughs) comments but some people say we all have the exact same music taste how dare you and, and here we are talking about Led Zeppelin too, but what did the what did the statistics say? How often have we come to full consensus out of a hundred episodes, or really out of ninety nine? But let's just call it out of a hundred. How many do you think we've come to full consensus on for a yes vote? Oh, that we've all said one hundred percent yes. I I'm gonna say twenty. It's thirty five. <laughs> Oh, fuck you guys. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Get better musical tastes, all right? <laughs> it's 35. How many, on the other hand, I, I basically the question is that we come to consensus about 55% of the time that we give it a yes vote, ultimately. 35 times out of, out of the 99. How many, on the other hand, do you think we say consensus skip these records? More, more or less than that? Consensus skip less. I think it's about the same. Maybe exactly the same. <laughs> it's not too far off. It's 24. Okay. And then we have a bunch of split decisions. Now, as you know, we vote at the end of each episode. So I did a calculation. Who here do you think is the biggest hater who has the most no votes compared to the number of episodes they've actually had a chance to vote on? I want to say it's Rob. I would say Rob as well. It's Phil. Yeah. It's <laughs> Phil. <laughs> yeah. The- Phil's given a total of 26 no's. Bjork. But he's been on a, a fewer episodes, so 42% of his votes have been no votes, which is the highest. Flip side, who is the I'm biggest... Happy to hear it. Who is the biggest yay-sayer? Adam. Yeah, I'm going to guess me. Yeah, that's correct. That was <laughs> <laughs> So I'm not a curmudgeon. Wow, all right. Yeah, so, I'll... Well, actually, I saved... Okay, I kind of saved the, the best okay. for last, I think. Which is... Tony Braxton style there. <laughs> Now for the eyes, how dare you people tell us that we're always in complete consensus. We're obviously not, even though we are most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) But sometimes the hardest position to be in, I think we would agree, in this podcast is the opposite of consensus. It's the situation where one of us is the lone voice of dissent or reason, depending on how you think about it, against everyone else. It has happened a total of 23 times. But who is the most contrarian of the hosts? Tom. I would also guess you. I would go Rob. 
I say Tom. I mean, I'm, I'm going to say it's Adam. I'm the more contrarian person in life, but I feel like I'm a basic bitch when it comes to music. So <laughs> he nailed it, Tom. Adam is by far the most yeah, contrarian. Really? Yeah. All right. And Tom is the least. Yeah. <laughs> And right. just for a quick recap of the wrong votes that, <laughs> that Adam has logged. Oh, go to hell. All right, let's hear it. <laughs> voted yes on D'Angelo, yes on Randy Newman, yes, no, sorry, no on the New York Dolls, no on Led Zeppelin 1, yes on the Nightfly, yep. no on Funkadelic, yes on Lenny Kravitz. Come on. <laughs> Wait, you said no to Funkadelic? Oh. Wow. Yes on Lord, no on Bell and Sebastian, and eh, wrong. <laughs> Yes on Nora Jones. Yeah, you see where Yes on okay. Nora Jones. And yes on the B... Now, I forget where I was on the B... No, I think I said no on the B-52s. You said no on the B-52s. That's all right, correct. all right, all right. Okay. I'd like to point out, though, the, the weirdest one to me is Alan's only had three of those instances, but he voted... He somehow was the only voice of reason on synchronicity. <laughs> What's wrong with you guys? Wait, was I the only one that voted yes on that? Yes. I have some regrets. I have some regrets, all right? Whereas Phil's over here voting against Willie Nelson in the Mars Volta. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that, now's the time for this. Uh, you know, I had some, I had some closing <laughs> remarks. I got a lot of problems with you people. That, that involves something similar. You know, I did review my own stats. And yeah, uh, you know, the, the police, the police rejection is a real standout. <laughs> there are some other no's that I look at. Like, I rejected like a prayer, you know. I rejected Willie Nelson. I rejected Purple Rain. These are, these are tough choices. And the one, Rob, the one that's really tough uh, is, is the yes on Blood, Sex, Sugar, Magic. It just... What and a that, stain. That, that one tipped the scale. What a stain on my <laughs> That my, one tipped the scale, bro. I know. Uh, okay. Oh, no, 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 no. My reputation. Oh, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> this is about building up a false. Right. No. <laughs> it's been an amazing 100 episodes. We're going to close it out with a vote here on Led Zeppelin 2. Thank you all for listening this far. Is Led Zeppelin 2 a must listen before you die? Tom. I am going to have to stay true to the criteria that I have laid down in the past, which is I assume that you've heard all of the hits. Are the non-hits worth it to listen to the rest of the album? And I'm going to vote no. And God damn it, I fucking love this album a lot. I thought it was really great. Is it important? Sure, it's fucking important. It's great. But you've already heard what you need to hear off of this album, so you don't need to seek it out so you can hear the one or two other tracks that have not assaulted your ears on classic rock radio in your lifetime. It's a hard no vote for me, but I had to stay true to the criteria I have used in the past. Add one more to the drinking game where Tom makes an incorrect decision <laughs> on something like criteria and then sticks with it to the death. It's like uh, that Chappelle show when keeping it real goes wrong. <laughs> You know what? <laughs> Fuck all you guys. I'm glad you didn't include the friends tag at the beginning now. <laughs> okay. okay, Adam. I'll I'll keep it quick. It's a yes for me. This 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 rocks. Go listen to it. Alan. Yeah, this is yes for me. I, I feel like I'm also trying to be consistent, but on the opposite end of the spectrum, that you're listening in a vacuum. And I mean, clearly you've heard all this before, but maybe you haven't and you shouldn't. Also a yes for me, uh, I think it's sort of quintessential rock and roll, as are most of the first five or six Led Zeppelin records. Yeah, I agree. This is Rob, and it's an obvious yes for me. As I stated in the tweet-length review, it is one of the most important rock records. I think it sets a template for what rock records are. So you can't 
reasonably call yourself a fan of bands or a fan of rock music or even a fan of music, I think, if you don't give this a hard listen. Same criteria as Alan, not Tom, in a vacuum. So definitely go listen to it. Led Zeppelin, great job, buddies. You did it. Accolades galore. (laughs) Yay. Enjoy. Okay, we're going to bring this one to a close. It's been an extra long one. We appreciate you sticking with us. Oh, wait, we have to decide next week's record. (laughs) Almost forgot. Going to throw it to Tom. Going to throw it to Tom for the Albinator. Tell us what we're going to be listening to this week. Sure. I have the Albinator here. It is pretty exhausted after pumping out 100 consecutive albums. 10% of the way through the list, people. Two years and 10%. There we go. Let's see what it has to give us for next week. So without any further ado, drum roll, please. We will be listening to... A band that I'm sure will be just as familiar to everyone as Led Zeppelin is. Uh, This is The Electric Prunes and their album, The Electric Prunes. I'm not making a joke here. This is actually the (laughs) album that we're listening to. This is not a bit that we're doing. What the fuck are the electric prunes? And that's got to be like 1950s, right? Well, now when is the list? I don't know. That just that sounds. Man, we're not yeah. really starting the next 200 with a with a yeah, yeah. God help us. <laughs> starting well, it with a solid bell movement. At least we're though. mixing it up. Yeah. Can I just right? do a preemptive no for that one? <laughs> uh, I'm going to do a preemptive. I can't make this episode. Okay. <laughs> All right, enough of your chicanery, fellows. We look forward to listening to Electric Prunes. We hope you listen along with us this week and join us next week again to dissect it. We appreciate all the love and support these 100 episodes for 1001 Album Complaints. I've been Rob. I've been Tom. I'm Adam. I'm Alan. And I'm Phil. Boosh, 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 boosh. There's a whole lot of boosh.